Hello, everyone. It's me, Kirk Monroe, um, back on uh, Anchor Podcast. I know that I had uh, just wrapped up uh, my uh, session earlier uh, with you, with my audience, but it turns out that um, that I may have figured out why I had a glitch from a previous night, and now I think I know why, um, how, and why it can be resolved. If I'm recording earlier in the evening, I don't have the issue. But if it's late at, at night, and it uh, it's it seems like that's where the glitches occur. I don't know why, but it's just what it is. But I'm here to finish what uh, I was not able to get recorded um, from my last um, recent uh, podcast session on New Jersey. I got cut off halfway uh, in talking about our, the first of the three signers being Abraham Clark. Where I got caught off was, or cut off rather, was um, had to do with his uh, sons being captured during war. They were forced on uh, prison ships. And uh, being on a prison ship during the American Revolution was no, um, was nothing um, funny to talk about. It was uh, a very uh, tragic um, experience. In many ways, it was, uh, it was a mini holocaust. And of course, I can't compare it to what um, the Jews in World War II endured, being concentration camps, but if you were sent on a prison ship during the American Revolution, that was like the equivalent of a concentration camp in that um, in that humanity was at its um, lowest level possible. Prisoners were um, put in what we would call today solitary confinement. They did not see any um, ounce of broad daylight. The only daylight they might have seen was um, the door to the top of the um, ship being lowered and closed, or opened and closed, I should say. Um, But the most infamous uh, prison ship uh, that is worth mentioning here was known as the Jersey. It was the worst because it was infiltrated with dysentery, smallpox, any other disease that would have uh, killed a prisoner in a short matter of time. It was referred to as a floating morgue. Prisoners died left and right with their bodies being dumped overboard just to make room for new uh, prisoners. The scary part is is that this uh, did happen. And for many of the prisoners, not just on this ship but on other ships that were stationed in New York Harbor, they chose to stay on these ships because they did not... For one, they were given an offer by the English to, um, to take up allegiances with the crown... But, but they refused to do it because they didn't want to put their fellow um, comrades who were fighting for our freedom, they didn't want to put them in harm's way. Now, you talk about a huge sacrifice, and many of our soldiers who died in the American Revolution, a fair number of them died on the prison ships. Now, as for uh, Mr. Clark, uh, they do historians know that one of his two sons might have been freed, but the other son's fate was left unknown. Very sad to know that uh, one of your children died as a prisoner of war. But as for Mr. Clark, he continued to serve in Congress on and off till war's end. He attended the Annapolis Convention of 1786, where reps from five of the 13 states met to address grievances over the Articles of Confederation. As we know, that um, system failed um, miserably to where we had no other choice but to get the um, 
a new government in play being our uh, modern day government that's still been in existence for 233 years. Uh, ironically, Mr. Clark was unable to attend the Constitutional Convention, but did support the document only on the grounds that it had a Bill of Rights, which it did happen. And, it's, and it's, it is fair to say that many of our forefathers or uh, signers, even with the Constitution, did sign it on one condition, that a Bill of Rights be put into play. So think about it, people. The first ten amendments to the Constitution, if you don't have anything like free speech, the right to assemble and petition, the right to a uh, fair and speedy trial, um, the right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment, if you don't have any of that in there, then how are you going to be able to have a Bill of Rights to begin with? Now, uh, Mr. Clark did cap off his public service as a U.S. representative from 1791 up until uh, 1794, which happens to be the year that he died. Lived to be uh, 68 years of age, which, you know, is pretty remarkable for, uh, for his day and time. But the way he died uh, wasn't anything in terms of... Um, it was actually um, an odd way to go. He died while watching a bridge be built on his land in what's known as Roselle. And it is safe to say to this day that he is the only signer whose sons were imprisoned. Uh, our next signer we will uh, get to here is uh, Francis Hopkinson. Now, Francis Hopkinson, uh, he really... Um, has to be, uh, his story has to be told. He was born in 1737. His primary profession was that of a lawyer, but he had many other talents and strengths in the following uh, fields. He was a mathematician, a chemist, a physicist, a mechanic, musician, to artist. He even built a keyboard for Benjamin Franklin, invented musical instruments, even wrote what was to be the first known American opera. Let's put it this way about Francis Hopkinson. He was an equivalent to a Renaissance man. He was born in Philadelphia, and his father was very dear friends with Ben Franklin. The two of them ended up ended up um, establishing Penn University, and young Francis Hopkinson was the he was a part of the first class that graduated from Penn University. He worked in the Treasury Department as a treasurer of loans around 1780. But here's what his greatest achievement was, and it's not known by many people. Even I didn't know it myself until having read the book last year. He, um, his greatest achievement was the American flag. How so? Well, for starters, he was known for designing seals for various agencies, in other words, logos. He was on a committee tasked with designing the Great Seal of the U.S., the stern eagle clutching an olive branch with 13 arrows in its talons. Why 13 arrows? Because that represents the 13 colonies. He did sketches of seals for the Treasury and the Board of Admiralty to U.S. currency, as well as a U.S. flag. And and I find the currency thing interesting because think about it today, people, we are... Our paper money and our hard currency all have, uh, what do you call it, uh, seals or logos on them, all representing something important about our country. And of course, uh, and it is safe to say that Mr. Hopkinson was probably ahead of his time on it. Now, when he was alive, 
Of course, there was no such thing as a modern-day Federal Reserve system, but for those of us who are from Virginia and ought to know our Virginia history, I, I do know this, that a, um, a U.S. senator who was uh, alive well before my time, uh, came, he hailed from Lynchburg, Virginia, where my father is from. He was a, a member of the prominent Glass family. His name was none other than Carter Glass. He helped uh, pass legislation known as the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 when Woodrow Wilson was president. Well, you know, whenever we um, have paper money on us and uh, modern-day currency coins, we can have uh, we we can have uh, Carter Glass to thank for all that. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, Francis Hopkinson was ahead of his time uh, in doing much of this stuff. Uh, there aren't any sketches of the flag that Mr. Hopkinson designed. However, his original description called for 13 red and white alternating stripes and 13 white stars on a field of blue. The stars were six-pointed and arranged in rows, so you have three, you have a row of three stars, another row of two, another row of three, another row of two, then you have another row of three. Uh, the flag, here's the objection. Many saw this flag as being too similar to the British. And here we are fighting a war against the British. So it might be best to say that we need to alternate the flag. Now, we've all been told for years that Betsy Ross um, established the first uh, flag. While she did, however, we have forgotten that someone else uh, beat her to the punch, not completely, but did lay the foundation for what she was able to do um, during the American Revolution. There's only um, a small um, amount of uh, concrete factual evidence and that Mr. Hopkinson himself did design a version of the flag, but historians know that he is the only person in the minutes of the Continental Congress that, who is credited with having designed a U.S. flag. You know, unfortunately, his home was ransacked by Hessian forces in December of 1776, and I will uh, talk about the Hessian forces uh, here towards the end of this, um, what do you call it, um, part two podcast um, session, because they do have a significance um, in uh, for New Jersey, especially, um, a significance that's perhaps not so good, but good for the um, Americans. Uh, Mr. Uh, Hopkinson served as a federal judge until dying of an, of an epileptic seizure at age 53 in 1791. You know, even in his day, people knew about seizures, but they didn't really know how to go about controlling them. But still, it's uh, very unfortunate that he died in what we know in today's time as being very young at 53, but in 1791, to have lived to have been just over 50 was probably considered old age. But there is a fitting tribute for Mr. Hopkinson in that there is a bronze plaque above his grave that states the following, the designer of the American flag. In other words, he may not have gotten the true official title, but he did lay the early foundations for what our American flag stands for today. So thank you, Mr. Hopkinson, for laying that foundation, which still stands um, tall and strong and mighty, even uh, 
in times of uncertainty. Uh, the last of the three signers um, that we'll talk about is uh, John Witherspoon. Now, he was born in 1723, and ironically, he is not originally from colonial America. He is from Scotland, and he is educated at the University of Edinburgh, and he begins preaching around 1743. He is a skilled orator and an avid writer. Now, who from uh, colonial America is going to be the first to establish contact with this fella? Well, it just so turns out that a future fellow uh, signer of the Declaration of Independence from New Jersey goes over to uh, Scotland, being none other than Richard Stockton. He was a trustee at the College of New Jersey, later to be known as Princeton. Mr. Stockton was so impressed by Mr. Witherspoon's um, work, especially with his sermons and just his ability to be an orator, a successful orator, Mr. Stockton persuades Mr. Witherspoon to become president of Princeton. Well, Mr. Witherspoon takes him up on the offer, and he becomes president of Princeton in 1768, just two years before that infamous Boston Massacre incident takes place. Well, right from the start, Mr. Witherspoon goes about increasing endowment to revamping the curriculum, but he is best known for turning men into patriots like James Madison and Aaron Burr, whom studied under him. He is best known for his sermons and writings to um, local activities, which led to his election to the provincial legislature. He even published an essay in 1774 titled, Thoughts on American Liberty. I think it's safe to say where Mr. Witherspoon's um, loyalties have been this whole time, and that is on the American side. And it, and it should be noted that he is the only true active minister in Congress, even before and leading up to the official declaration of separation from England. In 1776, he helps establish a new constitution for New Jersey. He led the movement to remove the last royal governor which turned out to be none other than William Franklin, Benjamin Franklin's estranged, illegitimate son. It's bad enough to remove a royal governor just because he has, in, in part because he has ties to England. It's bad enough when it is someone you know who wants separation from England, and, but yet it's his estranged, illegitimate son. Talk about dysfunction, even on the 18th century level. Well, Mr. Witherspoon uh, served in Congress until 1782. He served on multiple committees, participated in debates on the Articles of Confederation to serving in the New Jersey State Legislature. He was also part of a convention that ratified the U.S. Constitution. Unfortunately, he suffered two great losses during the war. Number one, the loss of his son at the Battle of Germantown. Number two, British forces which burned Princeton University. How much of the school was burnt, I don't know, but obviously it was a lot. But Mr. Witherspoon did everything there was in his power to help um, get the university back together. However, it was never fully restored in his lifetime. However, if he were alive today, he would be very pleased to know just how successful Princeton University um, is today 
um, in regards to it being an um, Ivy League uh, school. Not just an Ivy League school, but a well-known school nationally and internationally. He was a major player in the national reorganization of the Presbyterian Church. He died in 1794 at age 71. And yes, he is remembered as the signer who was also a minister. And how fitting that he is buried in the president's lot at Princeton Cemetery. Well, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, 1776, real quick, um, I'll make it as brief as I can, but 1776 was a year of highs and lows. What, what about the highs? Well, our forefathers have come together to declare independence from England. They've all um, agreed that we must separate after trying every other means of reconciliation with the crown. It's one thing to declare your independence from the mightiest um, empire in the world. It's another thing to be able to go out on a battlefield and fight and go head to toe with them. Towards the end of 1776, most notably December, morale is at an all-time low for George Washington. He has been badly uh, defeated at uh, Kipps Bay, Long Island, Brooklyn Heights, and other um, areas around Long Island. Nothing just nothing seems to go right, and he has been forced into um, what we call hiding or in retreat around uh, the Pennsylvania-New Jersey line. Well, this, this is a time that's going to try uh, men's souls. And for George Washington, he knows that the revolution itself is just a a blink away from being completely extinguished. And according to European customs, especially the British, they know that fighting in the winter is off limits. Their troops need to be rested. They need to have a break from warfare. They need to be, uh, what do you call it, um, rejuvenated to go again come spring. Well, George Washington um, has to come up with something because if he waits till spring, he's probably not going to have a Continental Army come the spring of 1777. It just so turns out that a man who I believe is working, or should I say historians know, is working as a uh, double informant agent, he comes to George Washington and says to him, Hey, I know of an area that is um, occupied by uh, the Hessians, who are the British, uh, who are mercenaries for um, King George's army. The Hessians come from Germany in an area known as Hesse Cassel. And just so that you all know, King George III's wife, uh, Queen Charlotte, she is referred to as Queen Charlotte of Mecklenburg, she is of German descent. So King George marries into that German um, ancestry lineage. And history has shown that uh, the British and the Germans, when it comes to royalty, have very strong ties. So King George III's reign is known as the House of Hanover. And hey, there is a Hanover County, Virginia. There is Hanover, Pennsylvania. Hanover, New Jersey. Hanover, Maryland. What does that tell you right there? There is strong British um, connections and there is a Mecklenburg County in Virginia, which is tied directly with Queen Charlotte. So the Hessians come from what's known as Hesse Cassel. And so they are working 
hand in hand with uh, the king's army. The Hessians have no respect for King, for George Washington and his men. They have been on the front lines at New York. They have uh, gone side to side with the British in routing American forces. They know that George Washington and his men are weak. They know that they don't have a whole lot of fight in them. So the Hessians are really at an all-time high right here. Here they are celebrating the holidays uh, getting eager to go back home to uh, Germany. But there is a problem. They have pretty much let their guard down. But of course, at this point in time, why would they think differently? They already know what to expect of the Americans. However, the informant has told Washington that, hey, they have left their facilities unprotected. You have an opportunity to uh, launch an un what do you call it, an unforeseen strike. And if you do this, you can get morale restored and you can live to see another day, especially going into a new year. Washington takes him up on the offer. But I should tell you this, that the ride across the Delaware River was no picnic. It took about eight to nine hours to get everybody over who made it. Washington's army by this point in time is about 2,400 men strong. Well, to us that seems strong, but remember, his army unit has dwindled due to desertion, people giving up because they just don't feel that there's any more uh, hope in this cause. Many of the people who have given up uh, have gone back to their homes, or I should say their farms, to tend to their families and the livestock. So those who, are, who have stayed on are obviously willing to make the sacrifice, but they know that their enlistment is um, almost coming to an end. So there is a famous picture uh, of George Washington on a boat, and it's, it's been, it was uh, done uh, years after the American Revolution. And as a matter of fact, I've seen the picture many of times, um, especially from a book I read two years ago called George Washington's Surprise Attack, which does have to do with the Battle of Trenton. But Washington is standing um, tall. He's not sitting down, but he is standing up and mighty on this boat. Now, historians don't know 100% for sure if, in fact, this is true. Some people have said no. Others have said yes. If he was, in fact, standing up, he was standing to affirm his allegiance to the cause and to tell his men that, hey, through thick and thin, we are going to find a way to um, prevail. And, and despite the roadblocks, meaning the ice that they had to navigate through, they were going to get to the other side of the river. And they did, but there again, it took about eight or nine hours. And remember, uh, people... Um, a lot of other items are being transported, like cannons, horses, other forms of artillery, uh, weapons. Uh, this is just not some little free passage ride over. Uh, and the men who uh, sailed back and forth to transport the others over were from uh, Marblehead, Massachusetts. These men had grown up in the uh, mercantile industry all their life, so they knew what it was um, like to be tough and strong. They, may, they might as well have been their own version of the Marines, the few and the proud. They, they risked it all to ensure that the rest of George Washington's forces were going to make it over safe. So Washington and his men marched about 10 to 15 miles, 
And as for the informant, he uh, told the Hessians of what was going to be um, planned or what we were going to be doing. Well, high-ranking officers laughed at the, at the uh, informant. They basically told him that, hey, he was nuts because the Americans were weak. They had nothing in them. So we're just going to uh, blow this off and just say that it's all a bunch of foolish um, foolish or what we often hear by our leader of the country today as fake news. Well, I hate to say this, um, George Washington's surprise attack was no fake news. It was the real deal. By the time they made it to the uh, German uh, or the Hessian camp in Trenton, they had lined up their cannons in all different directions, north, south, east, west. They had men ready to go. And once the surprise attack was launched, um, there was no turning back. In the end, we captured over a 1,000 Hessian soldiers. Only a couple of our men were um, wounded. And it turns out that one of the men who was on the same boat as George Washington was, was carrying the, the American flag on the way over the Delaware River. His name was none other than James Monroe, an 18-year-old student at William & Mary who suspended his academic work to take up the cause for independence. He was shot at Trenton, but thank heavens a doctor was right nearby to, um, to tend to his wound. Had it not been for that doctor, I don't know if James Monroe would have lived. But what I do know is that the Battle of Trenton saved the... Um, the Americans. It helped restore morale and gave a new sense of uh, direction. And come the start of 1777, we defeated the British elsewhere in New Jersey at Princeton. Two battles that um, that really shook the world. You know, here in Massachusetts, a year earlier, 1775, we were firing the shots heard around the world. This was a second uh, revival of the shots heard around the world. In other words, this battle gave, uh, gave Congress itself all the more faith and credibility in um, assuring that George Washington was our commander-in-chief. Had this battle not happened, even in the time when warfare would not have been conducted, uh, the Continental Army would have folded, the cause for independence would have folded, who knows what would have happened? It's safe to say that we would have returned as subjects to um, His Majesty, being that uh, ruthless uh, king, being King George III. Um, but lastly, I should say this, that uh, the New Jersey state coin on the back uh, has a picture of a boat with George Washington and others in it crossing the Delaware River. But the title of the of the state coin says the crossroads of the revolution. Well, it makes practical sense. Think about it. The crossroads meaning that it's the turning point. It's going to make or break for our future, for our country's future. And what do you know? Um, fate was on our side, and George Washington came through when it mattered most. And that's why New Jersey played such a pivotal role in the revolution. It saved... Um, it saved uh, it saved everything. So there were many battles fought in New Jersey, but New but New Jersey does deserve to be um, referred to as the crossroads of the revolution. Well, thank you for letting me um, 
finish what I was not able to finish from the first podcast on New Jersey. I look forward to another podcast episode here soon. Uh, Take care, and uh, thank you for tuning in. Good night.